I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we're looking at Grand Hotel, the winner in the fifth annual ceremony. And the eligibility period for this ceremony was for films screened in Los Angeles between August 1st, 1931 and July 31st, 1932. And... Joining once again is regular co-host Trey Hooks. Hello, Blaine. Hello, Trey. All right, so Grand Hotel. Nothing exciting ever happens here. Oh, no. No, directed by Edmund Goulding, written by... Well, the novel was written by Vicki Baum, and William Absalom Drake adapted it into a play. The America version was the one used as the inspiration for the movie script. And then it had uncredited script contributions for the film version by Bella Balaz, William Absalom Drake, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. And this was first released on April 12th, 1932. And I would say that Benjamin Tao deserves a special call-out as the casting director, although casting directors are not necessarily going to be mentioned in all the movies, but I think this time it should be. Yes. This is the film that won because it had a murderer's row cast. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have Greta Garbo as Grusinskaya, and she was such a huge star at this time, they didn't feel the need to specify her first name was Greta. She was credited just as Garbo. And everyone here, the next few names I'm going to read, I should mention that they are not billed as was typical of the day. So for those who are just listening along and haven't watched a lot of films from this era, normally you get one screen with just the list of names like we're used to in the closing credits today. Performer, character, performer, character, performer, character, with, what, probably about 10 per screen? Really all the major speaking roles? Yeah. Here, they each get a title card. So there's Garbo's. Then John Barrymore as Baron Felix von Gregeren. Here, they're not specifying the character they're just giving a shot of them like a headshot of that performer in character and the name we've got joan crawford as flemchen wallace beery as general director pricing lionel barrymore as otto kringlein and lewis stone as dr otternschlag i feel compelled to mention that if people aren't already familiar with the barrymore family john lionel and ethel barrymore were siblings and I, at this point, I'm honestly forgetting whether it's Lionel or John, who is Drew Barrymore's grandfather. It's John. Okay, John. So, yeah, the Barrymore family have been in show business for a long time. So, John, Lionel, and Ethel were the first film stars, but their parents were vaudeville and other touring acts. And each generation since then has appeared on the movie screen, at least down to Drew. This might as well give a very quick synopsis of the premise. 
Various lives all intersect in the same hotel. A fading ballet star and a thief fall in love. A lying businessman gate falls for his stenographer. One of his employees has a fatal diagnosis of some kind and is living his last days out in style. And surprisingly, not everyone survives, but the man with the fatal diagnosis is one of the ones who makes it to the end of the film. So, just broadly speaking, what did you think of this before we get into all of the nominations and nominees for the year? I loved it. I I would put this up there with All Quiet on the Western Front. It's one of the best ones we've watched so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is one that ages quite well compared to some of the others we've seen. I first saw this probably in my college years when I had discovered Turner Classic Movies. And it was one that I had purposefully sought out because the cast is the first. First is probably inappropriate. It's probably the second great generation of actors, the first in the sound era. And many of them I had not seen in film before. So this was my first exposure when I saw it to Garbo and Barry and John Barrymore and even Joan Crawford. Okay, so I take you've been a fan of this f- film for a while then. I have. I- I'm a big Lionel Barrymore fan. Oh yeah. A, a lot of people recognize him. He- he's probably the one that's best known today of these, I would say, simply because he played Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. That's not necessarily his best role. It's, he's not necessarily the best performer in this, although you're kind of splitting hairs to pick who that is. But he just because that film is from the era, it's one of the ones that has lasted the generations and is still regularly watched. He's probably the best known of them to modern audiences. Well, to give our listeners a sense of the pedigree of the cast, Lionel Barrymore was the previous year's Best Actor winner. Wallace Berry headlined The Champ, which was another contender for Best Picture this year. So this, as you alluded to earlier, the casting wasn't atypical of this area. Normally you would have a star headliner supported by some good character actors. Other than possibly Lewis Stone, all of the cast here are headliners in their own right. Yeah. Up to this point, you might have, like, the biggest cast would be a male star and a female star. Yes. Right. Often couples that they would keep together. If people liked them in one, then they would keep putting that male and female star together as the leads. Partly because of the studio contract system at the day where people weren't paid by the film, they were paid by the week, they were under contract to the studio. When one film wrapped, the studio would say, Okay, what movie are we ready to start filming now? Okay, you two are in it, because you two are the ones that are available now. So it's often they were just the ones that suddenly became available. They like what they did together, so they keep putting them together. But yeah, Beery actually won Best Actor for the Champ in a tie. There were three nominees and two winners this year, but we'll get to that in more detail later. Yeah, so I would I would say that, yeah, the Barrymores are the big standouts but of course, there's nothing wrong with Garbo or Crawford. Crawford was early in her career, so you know enough to be a headliner, but you you could still see how she gets better at the craft by the time you get to some of her later films. She's definitely the supporting female lead to Garbo's female lead. 
even though they don't really have a lot of scenes together, she's second billing to Garbo. Yeah, which at this point in their careers probably would have been even if that's not the way screen time had played out. But that that is, like, Garbo is a driving force of the plot in ways that Flemchen by Crawford simply isn't. Right? Garbo is the headline star in this world. Flemchen is just the stenographer that Wallace Beery's character finds attractive. Right. And if you talk, maybe it's a little early to go into this, but if you talk about part of this film's influence and legacy, this role, if, if people still remember Garbo, this performance is probably what they are remembering. You know, when you watch Looney Tunes and Disney cartoons that would come after this, where they would parody Hollywood stars, when they're parodying Garbo, they're parodying this performance. The whole, I want to be alone. Yeah, that made the AFI's, you know, list of quotes for the, the best quotes in Hollywood history. Right? They put out the 400 nominations, people voted for the 100 best quotes. And Grand Hotel landed on that list for I Want to Be Alone. Yeah, th this is definitely one of her outstanding performances. To put it in perspective for our listeners, the, the context of the line is her career as a ballerina is somewhat in a slump. My reading of it is I think she's on the verge of a, a breakdown, if not having just recovered from a breakdown. And she's trying to push off the producer of the show that she's in. She's trying to push off her manager. I'm tired of doing this. I just want to be left alone. Yeah, she does strike you as someone who's... She's past her prime at, as a ballerina. The whole idea of people going to see a ballet is already starting to fade because there's other forms of entertainment out there, movies in particular. And yeah, her... Her time has passed, but she doesn't know what else to do to maintain the lifestyle she's accustomed to. So she does strike me as someone who's kind of trapped in a career she no longer wants to have. And her and John Barrymore have a very powerful chemistry in this film. Yeah, they do. But that's... The Barrymores have chemistry with everyone they've played opposite. They're just those kind of actors. They do. The, the Flemchen and Prisling relationship is creepy and it should be kringleine and flimchen's relationship is cute and sweet even though there are some of the same underpinnings to it and a lot of that's the way barrymore or lionel barrymore plays kringleine i can't help but smile when he's on the screen mm -hmm. yeah both barrymore and beery are playing characters who find Joan Crawford's character attractive, which is perfectly natural when you cast Joan Crawford. And her Flemishian character, she is a stenographer, but you do get the feeling that you know, she is just basically looking for a sugar daddy. And she's open to either one of them. With Kringleine, there's no other attachments. So it's not quite as creepy, whereas with Wallace Beery's pricing, you know He's got a wife and kids back home that you never see on screen. And that's a huge part of what makes it so creepy. She knows she's the other woman, and she's okay with that. Well, and the way that I read it is, 
with Priceling, she would expect to be taken care of. I generally got the feeling that she wanted to take care of Kringleine. Yeah, it was a little more of a maternal feel there, but still, she was definitely showing more interest in men who were her elders than in men her age. Not that the men her age in this film were major stars, so it's not like right. they're really going to be contenders. They weren't the main characters. You know, the, the Hollywood age gap is definitely not a new thing. The only one I thought was, I hesitate to say that, use the term wasted, but the only one who really didn't stand out in the cast, I think, was Lewis Stone. And I think that was largely because in the role of Dr. Autumn Schlag, he had somewhat of a thankless role. <laughs> it was kind of a mover role. You know, how do Baron and Kringlein get introduced? It's through Dr. Autumn Schlag. You know, he's he's the hotel doctor, obviously injured in the war or a war. He's has a facial disfigurement. And you get the sense that there's a whole story behind him that they never hint at and that they never go into. Yeah, he's he's there. He is the utility player to to keep the plot moving, but he doesn't make any plot driving decisions. Right. right. There's just points where you need a doctor to take a look at the sick patient, to declare that the that the victim of the stabbing is definitely dead, and so forth. But they even make a point of of he's the one who says nothing exciting ever happens here. And, you know, we've seen murders and all this stuff, but he's not the witness to it. Right. right. From his perspective, nothing exciting happens in the, what, 24 to 48 hours that we've just witnessed. It's just another day at the Grand Hotel. Yeah. So th there was some irony there, and they, they kind of gave him that line, I think, to hang a lantern on it. To say, well, mm -hmm. yeah, he's kind of just here to, to do what absolutely has to be done. So... Before we get into the you know other Academy Awards for the year and whatnot, did you have anything to add as just general impressions? No, I think we've covered it. it it's a it's a great film if you if you want to see at least uh, a lot of the predominant heavyweights of the era play off of each other. This is the film to check out. Yeah, I would agree. This my DVD copy, which I watched for the first time for this podcast, but was part of that giant crate of movies that I mentioned in previous episodes. Yeah, my copy says Best Picture Winner, and you know the, the quote on the back from the media telling you to do it is, if you want to see the classic studio Hollywood star system, this is the movie to watch, because it is the major 1930s lineup all on one film. So getting into the Academy Award nominations for the year, um, the quote-unquote Best Picture was actually called Outstanding Production. It was not Best Picture. but this was nominated and won, of course. The other nominees were Aerosmith, Bad Girl, The Champ, Five Star Final, One Hour With You, Shanghai Express, and The Smiling Lieutenant. And of those nine films, no, sorry, of those eight films, this is the only one I've actually seen, but I do believe you've seen a few more than those. I have. The only other, the only other film out of the ones that I've seen, that would be a close contender would be Shanghai Express. 
One Hour With You, it's charming, but it's a very light and fluffy musical. Aerosmith is a biopic. It it really hangs on the performance of Ronald Coleman. And uh, Five Star Final, it's a journalism picture. I don't know a better way of um, d- describing it. Once again, you take Edward G. Robinson out of it and the film falls apart. I, I-, I keep coming back to the theme. All of them were good and fine films in and of themselves. It's a strong lead, supported by one or two able supporting cast members. The acting and the characters in Grand Hotel are just superior to all of those other films. Okay. So getting into the other categories, this year awarded Best Director to Frank Borges for Bad Girl. Other nominees were The Champ and Shanghai Express. So no nomination for Grand Hotel there. Best Actor was a tie between Friedrich March for that year's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as Jekyll and Hyde, and Wallace Beery for The Champ. Alfred Lunt was nominated for The Guardsman as the actor. He was the only one that did not win. Best Actress went to Helen Hayes for The Sin of Madeleine Claudet. Marion Dressler was nominated for Emma and Lynn Fontaine for The Guardsman. Best Original Story, this would not have even been eligible for. Uh, went to The Champ by Francis Marion. This would have been eligible for Best Adaptation, but it was not nominated. Bad Girl won. Aerosmith and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were the other different nominations. Best Art Direction went to Transatlantic. No nomination for Grand Express. Cinematography went to Shanghai Express. Grand Hotel was not nominated. Best Sound Recording was to Studios. So the Paramount Public Sound Studio Department won up against MGM, RKO, Walt Disney, and Warner Brothers. Obviously, it was not eligible for the Best Short Subject Cartoon, which went to Disney's Flowers and Trees, or the Best Live Action Short Subject Comedy for Hal Roach's The Music Box. Best Live Action Short Subject Novelty went to The Wrestling Swordfish by Max Sennett. So this was the only nomination the film had, and I believe to date, this is still the only film to win Best Picture when that is its only nomination. Yeah, and with with all the strong performances in this, my, my assumption is maybe at that point in time the committee thought it would be somehow unfair to have, you know, one film lead the nominations. I, I don't know what the rules were at that time, but the Barrymore brothers should have been in that Best Actor hunt, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I've been wondering if maybe it wasn't nominated for acting just because it really is an ensemble cast and supporting categories didn't exist yet. What Was this the ceremony that led to the creation of the supporting categories with a, a tie popping up for Best Actor? It it may have been one of the ones that was that had come to mind, but the sixth annual did not have supporting yet either. Okay. So we'll we'll have to keep an eye out for when that does crop up. I haven't looked too far ahead at that particular set of awards. But on top of that, you know, that's how the Academy viewed it at the time. Sometimes movies are not looked at down the road the same way that, that they are when they come out. So we've also been actually compiling lists with the advanced search feature on the IMDb of other movies that were nominated that year, just to see 
you know, how time has been to these films and how much they've changed. According to IMDb users, as of the, as far as the movies that were nominated are concerned, Grand Hotel is the best film of the nominees, with an average score of 7.6 out of 10, with Shanghai Express coming in second, and Aerosmith coming in dead last. But IMDb users actually put Grand Hotel as only the eighth best film of the year overall. So in seventh place, we have Street Scene. In sixth, we have that aforementioned Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We've got The Last Flight, Tonight or Never. In third place, we've got Scarface. So this is the original Scarface, of course, not the Al Pacino remake. Second place, we've got James Whale's Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. And the number one film, according to IMDb users, is Freaks by Todd Browning. Looking up the nominee list on Letterboxd, we get very similar numbers with Grand Hotel coming in ninth, Monkey Business by the Marx Brothers coming in eighth, and then the seventh place film is actually Shanghai Express, which came in 14th on the IMDb, and then Street Scene, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Last Flight, Scarface, Frankenstein, and Freaks takes number one on both, with Tonight or Never actually coming in 25th place on Letterboxd. Hmm. So I believe you've also seen a, a number of the films that history has been kinder to. I have. Y you know, it's hard to definitely rank something as, you know, this is number one, this is number two, because um, there, there are just degrees of differences. I I'll just say, I think genre preference probably has a play in some of the rankings. Critically, I don't think Frankenstein is a better film than Grand Hotel. I certainly don't think Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are. Mm. They are better known properties to the average person on the street. I, people know about Karloff's Frankenstein monster to where that would be something that they would still, you know, go and seek out. Freaks has that cult cachet of being a band or lost film for years, depending upon which country you're in. Scarface is a great film. I just view it similarly to Shanghai Express. You know, um, Paul Muni really struck me as the lead in it, and he's going to be somebody that we'll see pop up again and again, at least as a nominee over the next couple of seasons. But But it doesn't it just doesn't have the power personalities behind it the Grand Hotel does. Uh, yeah, and I would agree with that. The The horror films from the year do tend to do disproportionately well looking at these. I mean, I actually just watched Freaks and this version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which have also been sitting in my collection since I bought that giant mm -hmm. crate. One of the things I'm liking about this podcast is that it's making me go back and watch these movies I've been sitting on for years. Yes. <laughs> Freaks, I might say, is better than Grand Hotel. Frankenstein, this film is more culturally influential. I mean, it's a better known property, but there are things people associate with Frankenstein that absolutely come from the James Whale version and not from the novel. Yes. That it has sort of become the cultural perception of the Frankenstein story rather than the source material. Jekyll and Hyde 
Friedrich March deserved that Oscar nomination. I haven't seen the other two performances, so I don't know if he deserved the win, but he did do an incredible job in that film with a lesser lead. I don't think that particular adaptation would be as well remembered or as fondly remembered as it is now. No, I, I agree. I, this is an aside. I always chuckle when I see that film. This was the one where they insisted on pronouncing Jekyll as Jekyll, and that always just kind of made me wince every time someone said his name. <laughs> yeah. There, there definitely is that. So, anyway, so of the, the movies that history has been kinder to, I would say that, yeah, Freaks is better. I would prefer mm -hmm. Freaks to Grand Hotel. It was definitely a much more pleasant surprise when I watched it, right? but not by a margin this wide. And I would say Grand Hotel is better than Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde. IMDb users, as I said, put the Marx Brothers monkey business above it, which I haven't gotten around to. I've watched some of their other movies because I got a couple box sets that came out from two different studios in two consecutive weeks. Mm -hmm. Just based on their reputation, having not seen any of their films, and I have been working through them for other years. <laughs> In this pod or in this podcast series, and I don't know, I I look at them and I see why stand-up comics love them because they really were a huge influence on stand-up comedy. But it's the same reason that I mean, I watched Annie Hall recently, which we'll discuss again in much more detail later. But mm -hmm. I have the same issue with both, where I enjoy good stand-up, I don't enjoy stand-up masquerading as a movie. And that's the Marx Brothers movies. They're, they're set pieces with just barely enough story to tie one to the next, if that. I, I find they get stronger the further they break away from their uh, adapted material. You know, their first two or three films were largely vaudeville or Broadway plays that they uh, adapted for stage. But by and large, I agree. I, I enjoy them, but they are the type of comedy movie that are, okay, the film has to stop now because X has to, you know, Harpo has to do his mime bit. And then the film has to stop again, you know, for Groucho to do his bit. And then the film, so those films lurch and stop. Yeah. I get the impression that had Groucho still been alive and active, I would have loved to see his stand-up, but his movies, they... They kind of fall flat for me. I, I do just want to say one quick thing about Shanghai Express. The the two other not the two nominees that I've seen that I recommend. One would be the champ Wallace Beery's great in it. Little Jackie Cooper is great in it. Shanghai Express I would also recommend, and that one's very close to me um, to Grand Hotel. It's got a lot of great um, performances. A lot of great character actors that'll be um, familiar to people from the era, and it has a plot with just, with some political overtones and some political tension to it. There's a little bit more intrigue and danger to it. So, if you like that kind of drama more than pure relationship drama, Shanghai Express I could see being elevated over Grand Hotel. Sure, good to know. I should add that to my very very long watch list. Yeah, so that's close to the, the end with what we would do. Uh, just want to mention that uh, as far as recommending this film, 
in terms of family-friendly content, I would say that maybe early teens would be a good one just because, I mean, there is a, a somewhat violent murder that we see here. And there's also there's also the relationship between pricing and the stenographer. It is an adulterous relationship that's, you know, based purely on, you know, the, the whole sugar daddy. It's just physical cash thing. So it's, you know, it's not something you would necessarily want to watch with a six or seven year old. You want the, once the kid is mature enough to understand that just because you're seeing the relationship, that doesn't mean it's a model of a good relationship, then you're, you're fine. Right. There's nothing overt or salacious, but there's definitely a lot of adult and mature relationships on display here. Yeah. I, I would think if you get, if the kids are too young, it's not, you're more likely that to have, to have the younger kids who wouldn't really process that properly to frankly just get bored and stop watching before you get to that point in the film. Right. If you're if you're mature enough to watch this 1930s film that far, then you're probably mature enough to handle it. Before we close out, I, I do want to bring out one really interesting piece of cross promotion okay. that I stumbled upon. I watched a film called Blondie of the Follies accidentally. And I say accidentally because I thought it was part of the Blondie series of films, and it's not. But there is a bit in it with Jimmy Durante where he does a bit about uh, Grand Hotel and how he made a mistake taking his girlfriend uh, to go see Grand Hotel because of her falling for Barrymore. And when I watched that, I was thinking, wow, that really speaks to the power of Grand Hotel at the time that, you know, it was being referenced and plugged in another movie. And then doing some research for this podcast, Edmund Golding directed both Grand Hotel and Blondie of the Follies. So he was really plugging his own work in the second film. I could see that. There, there were a couple other promotions, too. There was a, a short film called Nothing Ever Happens, which is included on my DVD, which is like a 20-minute musical send-up of it, which has a bit of a twist where the, the murder victim, instead of you know, sneaking off to do something that's a little more ethical and, and do things right, stays with the woman instead and doesn't get killed and it all comes out happy at the end. It also was remade as Weekend at the Waldorf in 1945, and that trailer is on the DVD for Grand Hotel. But there do seem to be a few shorts on these. I noticed a similar one with a musical short on I Am a Fugitive from the Chain Gang with a spoof of that one. That goes in very different directions. But that is something that we will probably discuss in a little more detail in our next episode. Yes. All right. So any closing thoughts on Grand Hotel? Just, I, I keep coming back to it. A great film. If you're watching along with us or if you're uh, cherry picking films, definitely put this towards uh, the top of your list. As we said, it's it's probably one of the best two that we've, reviewed and discussed so far mm -hmm. yeah it definitely is up there so yeah it like i said it, i would easily recommend this to anyone who's got any interest in the way 1930s hollywood ran because it's a quality movie that set the trend for the the star system in the studios and how that worked 
So it's definitely one of the most influential films of the decade. All right, but I think that's about all we have to say. Feel free to send any feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. There's a good chance it'll be read on the air. Although we are recording so far in advance that we will probably just record dedicated feedback episodes rather than including them in the regular podcast. Because we are currently recording about 18 months in advance. Okay, and finally, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.